you're you're bringing a real weird energy, <laughs> a real severe weird energy to this podcast. Good, good. I'm not not enjoying it, but it is putting me on edge slightly. I'm worried yeah. at any moment I'm about to be handcuffed and yeah, put in a stock. Exactly. Or yes. <sighs> Sorry, I'm on very annoying form. Keep going. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. I am Abby. Hello, I'm Daniel. And, uh, I got nothing. I, I started yeah. real strong. Yeah. That was a bold start. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Daniel, did you try that hideous breakfast from God of Small Things? Did you try it? Did you? Can we save this discussion? Oh, God. Okay. Oh, <laughs> this is a... Okay. You guys should know that Daniel and I are still fighting about the Pamela poll. So, the, the issue is... if you I'm trapped in it. If, you, if I just went along with your Daniel, answer... Then I'd shut up about exactly, it. That's about, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I still think she could. No, Daniel, it's okay. I, I accept your apology. Uh, Daniel, you don't need to tender your resignation. That's too far. Friend, it's okay. Don't cry. <laughs> Daniel, what is our text today? Before we get onto the text, how are you? Are you alright? I'm fine. It's just that I've had some pretty good, good news. Well, I was having my jam and egg on toast for breakfast, as I do every day the other day. I hate you. I suddenly had like a kind of weird, um... Stomach ache? Moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A moment. It may have started in the form of a stomach ache, but it turned into something much more profound and enlightening. Okay. And it's pretty much, I've discovered that I'm one of the elect. I've just got a one-way ticket, you know, fast track to the pearly gates. You're afterwards. not getting raptured. I'm in, no. But, so I'm gonna, from now on I'm gonna stop people dancing whenever I see people dancing. Okay. No music at all. But I've also been noticing a few things as well. What about you then? You're not from around here, are you? You're foreign, right? What, governor? Yeah. Right. I've been up the apples yeah. and the pears. Right, alright, yeah. You're also quite learned, aren't you? Would you say you've read an unacceptable number of books? Define unacceptable. I'd say in your case, that of a woman, more than one. Ideally, we want you to have just read the New Testament. Have you ever associated with or been affiliated to the ranters? You rant a lot, does that count? Very funny. The shakers. You do shake a lot. Trying to evade the question, interesting. Uh, the dashers. I mean, you do love hats. Is that a haberdasher? <laughs> the dancers. I did see you dance once. The fifth monarchists. I have a funny joke for that. Socialist worker party. Looking right at you, bud. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know what I'm going to say. Thou art sorceress. Thou art Aww. a sorceress. Stop it. You're making me blush. Oh, yeah. This is nice. Right. And you're going to be in good company. Because we're doing Arthur Miller's The Crucible. And it's my job as one of the elect to purge or redeem thou. I mean... The... Can I... 
<laughs> Are you going to do the Boston accent you promised me last episode? I did watch a video where uh, on YouTube where a guy was trying to learn how to... In six hours, the actor? Yes. Oh yeah. no, I watched the same one! <laughs> and I was practicing it, realizing how bad it was. Yeah. Well, I still think you should try the Boston accent, no matter how Oh, bad. don't worry, I will. Good, because yeah. you, you need to take the hit. Take the hit for the show. Yeah. Give the people what they want. Okay, so I will give the normal warnings, spoilers, we're about to recap this entire play. Trigger warnings, we have mass hysteria, a little bit about infant mortality, a lot about gaslighting, persecution, and murder, especially murder by the state. I don't know if you have any um, smart ass... Well, witchcraft. Ones. Oh, I for oh, as a member of the elect, I forgot that... Uh, I mean, if maybe you think... Well, obviously you do think cavorting with Satan is fine, but for some I of do. us... <laughs> Arthur Miller. Goody Monroe. That's a little joke I wrote down. It was a prefab. I like that joke. to Marilyn Monroe, didn't he, he? He was married to Marilyn Monroe. Play covers the Salem Witch Trials, as we will no doubt be discussing in substantial detail. That was in 1692. But it's meant to be a kind of allegory for the McCarthyism in the 1950s. The Red Scare, the anti-communist investigations. And Arthur Miller was brought before the board, and I think he refused to testify. Yeah, well there was... The House Un-American Activities Committee, wasn't HUAC, there? yeah. Yeah, so Congress had this kind of, um... Everyone was a red, they were terrified that everyone was a communist, so they're bringing in... Primarily sort of, uh, films, Hollywood film types, stars and yeah. dr dramatists. But yeah, they asked people to name names, didn't they? If they indicted other people of communist sympathies, then the person on trial would probably be let off, wouldn't they? But if they didn't, then they would get in trouble. So the play opens in 1692 in Salem, and we open in the house of Reverend Samuel Paris, who's basically a bit of a Karen. So he's the new reverend in the community, and the locals have not taken to him at all. So he basically says over the course of the whole play, Don't you know who I am? I'm a Harvard man. Why don't you corn-shucking losers like me? So that's the energy that he is bringing. And weirdly, I, I, we're almost sort of immediately sidetracked by Arthur Miller. And the, the narrator just interjects for pages with all this historical context. Yeah. I've been in a I, lot I like of plays. Yeah. I like them. I've just never seen anything like it before in my life because the audience doesn't see this. Like, who is this for? Is this mm. for people reading it? Is this for the benefit of the actors yeah. developing their characters? Yeah, is it like a stage direction type thing or what? Is it like just a historical note to show he's done his research? Like, what is this? Yeah. So it almost reads as half a novel, half a play. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, Reverend Samuel Paris is about to have a very bad day. Let's see how it goes. Oh, I love the bit. Sorry to keep going. It's Autocracy fine. by consent. That's such a great way of describing that sort of Massachusetts puritanical community that... Like a police state, but everybody's the police. <laughs> um, anyway, that's America. Um, Are you going to give me a lot of sass about America today? I think he's trying to make that connection, isn't can, he? Can we agree here? You can sass me about America as much as you like, but I'm going to sass you about Protestantism as much as I like. Well... As a member of the elect, it doesn't really <laughs> bother me what you think. Seeing you from the other side of the pearly gates, so I'll be laughing my head off. And I'll be having martinis in hell with Oscar Wilde. They don't Wild. have martinis in hell. Oscar Wilde wouldn't be in hell. Seems like a kind of purgatory kind of guy. No, the elect don't believe in purgatory. Hell is a fable too. You'll so just, where am I? You'll just be in a kind of floating void of nothing. This sounds fun. This sounds really relaxing. Are you Jewish? Jewish people don't believe in hell either. I'm not sure what. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway. I'm not sure what's going on. An autobiography by Daniel <laughs> So, Paris's daughter, Betty, is ill. 
bedridden. Yeah, she's not doing well. She's very ill. Paris, this man of God, this all-round good guy, has a Barbadian slave called Tichaba, and she comes in and is like, oh, how's Betty doing? And Paris shouts her out of the room. Next, Abigail Williams turns up. She's Paris's orphaned niece who lives with him. And she comes in with the doctor's daughter who says that her father cannot discover any medicine for Betty's illness in his books. It's beyond science. So um, maybe the cause is unnatural? Oh, yeah. You better believe the cause is maybe unnatural. So Abby goes to her Uncle Paris and she's like, so, uh, hey Uncle Paris, the whole town is talking about witchcraft and in terms of witchcraft, we do not want to f*** around and find out. You should go down and talk to them and say nothing is wrong. Everything's okay. And Paris is like, and what exactly am I supposed to say to them? That I saw my daughter and you, my niece, dancing all Satan-like in the forest. That's right, I was there and I saw everything. And Abby's like, what are you, the dad from Footloose? It was just dancing. We, you know, we weren't doing anything wrong. Whip me if you need to. I mean, you kind of strike me as the sort of guy who'd be into that. We have kind of a weird vibe going on here. But dancing is not witchcraft. I am a malign uncle, and I am much worse than the dad from Footloose. <laughs> so I might have ergotism. You don't know. Um, you were hiding in a bush in the woods in the middle of the night. It's all just important research. Um, <laughs> also, my slave, my property, Tichiba. Tatuba, I can pronounce it however I like. <laughs> she was waving her hands around, shrieking over the bonfire. Seems pretty ritualistic, don't you think? Uh, I mean, she's just singing her Barbados songs. You know, how all songs from the Caribbean are just women screaming at the moon. You're, yeah. you're out of touch enough to believe that, right? Yeah, I've got a um, 78 of some calypsos, and there is a lot of severe bellowing. I also saw a dress on the floor, and somebody was running around in the nip, without any clothes on, that is. Look, that uh, sounds like something you need to unravel with your psychoanalyst. We were all fully clothed. There was no witchcraft. I honestly, I cannot tell you again. Also, further evidence. You're a wrong'un. Goody Proctor sacked you as her maid, and no one knows what's going on there, but it seems pretty dodgy to me. Yeah, well, Elizabeth Proctor is a mom-haired lion bitch, and she's just mad that I wouldn't be her slave. Unlike our actual slave, Tatuba, who loves us! She just loves being owned by us! Well, that's something we can all agree on, I think. Daniel, I think we're really elevating the form here. Yeah. What? Podcasting form, the theatrics, our own discourse. I just, I think we really smashed it. If only Arthur Miller... God, if only he were alive yeah, to hear this. Yeah, he would have stopped writing the play. <laughs> so... Abigail and her uncle Paris are interrupted by this really disturbed woman named Mrs. Putnam who just walks into Betty's bedroom and she walks in asking, hey, how high did Betty manage to fly? Because people around town saw her flying. And I'm like, woman, you are really underselling this. That's like saying, hey, I saw your daughter turn into a transformer. Can you <laughs> tell me how many parts she had? Like, what? The She's just really casual about it. And then she also reveals, again, slightly casually, that her own daughter, Ruth, who apparently was also one of the girls dancing in the forest, has gone into a coma, but she's like a slightly creepier version than Betty's coma because Ruth's eyes are open. And I'm like, ma'am, she is just in a committee meeting. And so she's basically like, witchcraft? Witchcraft? Maybe? A little bit? 
And so Paris screams at everyone to just shut the f up about witchcraft, it's fine. He's, he's already called a witchfinder scholar named Hale as a precaution, and any whiff of witchcraft in his house would have people howling for his blood, especially because he's the reverend, and it's also taken him so long to get the community to accept him. And I'm just sitting here going, my dude, two ten-year-olds are in comas. I think this horse has well and truly bolted. Like, you're not gonna get people to hush up about it now. Mrs. Putnam then goes on to say, because, I mean, she is a really sort of disturbed character, and she says she's only ever had sickly children who have all died more or less the day they were born, except for Ruth. And she's like, now even Ruth is wasting away before me. And she's convinced that someone is witching her babies. And she has a big reveal here. So she says that actually she might be partially to blame because she sent her daughter Ruth to Tatuba and asked Ruth to ask Tatuba to help her summon up the spirits of these infants to be able to tell her who killed them. So one so slip up. Everybody makes <laughs> one slip up. So like let's just let's get this straight, right? Necromancy. She's using witchcraft to stop witchcraft, and now she has caused her daughter to get witched, and also infants cannot speak. I do not know why she seems to think that their ghosts can, and all of a sudden, you know, poor Tatuba's gonna find herself in a real racist pickle real soon. And Paris is like, wait, Abigail, you said Tatuba was just singing songs, so you were conjuring spirits last night, you know, fetch me whip. And Abigail, who is very good at sort of maneuvering and can really easily throw an enslaved woman and a comatose 10-year-old under the bus, is like, it wasn't me. I was just there to groove. I reiterate, I am only guilty of being able to two-step like a motherfucker. These guys were the ones who were dealing with shady stuff. I wasn't involved. Next. The adults leave the room. Mary Warren turns up, a subservient, naive, lonely girl, saying that the whole village is talking witchcraft. Someone called Mercy's there too, another girl. Mary reveals that she was present at the dance, but she only watched. Mary implores Abigail to admit that she and the other girls were dancing and doing nothing supernatural, which is just a whipping offence, dancing, isn't it? And in my capacity as a member of the elect, I can <laughs> confirm that, yeah, that should be just whipped for, not hanged. Witchcraft, meanwhile, yeah, hang them. Hang him high. Yeah, uh, the girls are all basically like, we need to get our story straight or get the f*** out of Dodge, friends. Yes. Betty then wakes up. Big faker. Yeah. She's like, Abigail, you drank blood. I saw the whole thing. That was with the intention of magically killing the wife of her former master, John Proctor. The mom-haired <laughs> goody Proctor. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, first of all, what I think is kind of funny about this, right, is I am from this neck of the woods and we are perfectly happy to have shit like blood sausage and black pudding, but drinking blood, well, that's a step too far. Have you ever had blood sausage or black pudding or anything? Obviously, yes. Do you like it? Um, I haven't had it in a long time, but I remember quite enjoying it. As much as one can enjoy calcified or whatever. You're like, mmm, this tastes like fucking nickels, yes! <laughs> exactly, yeah. Then Abigail... She has a real come to Jesus, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, she slams down on all the hoo-ha, on all the hysteria, and says, If you girls breathe a word about this, I will come to you, this is a quote, in the black of some terrible night, and I will bring a pointy reckoning that will shudder you, and you know I can do it. I saw Injuns smash my dear parents' heads on the pillow next to mine, and I have seen some reddish work done at night, and I can make you wish you had never seen the sun go down. Ma'am, this is a Wendy's drive-thru. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I just like that Be 
Teddy is instantly like, well, I'm going back into this coma. The only way out is through. And she just like lies back stiff as a board. Then John Proctor, a 30-something neighbor from five miles away who Abigail used to work for, enters Betty's bedroom. Is this house just, is this an open house situation? It's like a sitcom, isn't it? He comes in and everyone's like, way! Listen, the only thing you need to know about John Proctor is that he is a 17th century fuckboy, and we're about to find out why. I need to figure out good music for boys on this podcast because he does not deserve the sexy music and he definitely does not deserve the himbo music. Uh, the rattlesnake sound? So he's basically like, the other two girls, get out! Everyone leaves except for Abigail and Betty who's faking being in a coma. And Abigail pulls the whole, hey John, have you been working out sort of vibe? And he is into it. And I'm just thinking, please do not have sex in front of the faking a coma 10 year old, I beg of you. So it becomes clear that when Abby was working at his house, the two of them had an affair and did a lot of blinking in his barn. Somebody had sex on a thresher. Somebody made an inappropriate use of a winnower. I don't really know. They had a good time. Sounds pretty dangerous. Uh, that's part of the appeal, oh, Daniel. I'm sorry. <laughs> but his wife found out, and that's why Abigail was fired. Although no one else in town knows about this because John's reputation was on the line, not just hers. So every that's well, so like, you get done in, right? It's like a crime. Uh, probably. Well, no, definitely. Okay, well. talk about that later on. Well, regardless, they, they've all been like, we're just all going to keep this real quiet. Happy families. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So John very flirtatiously says that their affair is over with, and he basically... I did not find this flirtatious at all. Oh, friend. Okay, right. Like, just, just... Okay. Okay, we're going to... That's fine. I thought he was all like... No more of that, Abigail. Uh, you, I consider thee a friend. Uh, uh, just, okay, okay all right, okay. all right. Uh, I think this depends on how it's played, but the capacity is there. So he basically does a whole, let's pretend this never happened, I'm just not that into you thing, and she's like, interesting. Query, then why did you, a very busy farmer, walk five miles into town to my uncle's house just to say hi when you did not have to? You were devastated when your wife fired me, and... I see you coming by at night to stare into my bedroom window. I see you He's creeping He's banging everything. his face into the tree. He's not, it's nothing to do with her. Mm, he can bang his face into any tree he likes anywhere. He doesn't have to come stare at her bedroom window at night. And he gets all sniffy going, a man might creep and peep if he wishes. It doesn't mean anything. But this this whole setup is, is really important for later because John Proctor prides himself on being really honest. Like this is the crux of the climax of the play where like he will not lie. But this early bit of the play shows that he is lying to himself as much as he's lying to everyone else. And there's a real sort of like burgeoning psychoanalysis thing happening. Normally, in this podcast, this is where I would say, get therapy. Except my uh, co-host here has ridiculed me for saying get therapy so much. I just feel like if you're not in the elect, you probably don't deserve help. So I I guess I can't say get therapy anymore, because Daniel gives me an eyebrow raise. Go ahead, you gotta say it! No, no, it's fine. It's fine, Daniel. You've just ruined everything. So Betty is probably getting... Keep going. I was just laughing at that. So Betty, who's probably getting really uncomfortable listening to her cousin sort of have weird foreplay at the foot of her bed with this, like, gross farmer twice her cousin's age, in her fake coma starts screaming. And everyone's singing psalms downstairs as well. Yeah, so it unfortunately coincides with that. And they all rush in, 
thinking Betty can't bear to hear the Lord's music because she's definitely been witched by Satan. And this is when um, Arthur Miller goes on a little bit of a diatribe about Protestantism and why John Proctor is so f***ed up. And Arthur Miller writes, quote, These people had no ritual for the washing away of sins, and it has helped to discipline us as well as to breed hypocrisy amongst us. And I just think, mm, as a Catholic, that guilt is so delicious. You proddy types really shot yourself in the yeah, foot. Yeah, but he's, I mean, Arthur Miller wasn't Protestant either, was he? So he's saying that it bled into all American. So anyway, all the adults pour in and to, to comfort Betty and a woman named Mrs. Nurse, who's highly respectable, is the only person who's able to sort of calm her from screaming. So yeah, they're all here. Paris is there. Putnam, Thomas Putnam, that is the husband of Mrs. Putnam, whatever her name is. <laughs> He's like a big wig, isn't he? He's kind of a... Yeah, I mean, not not counting Reverend Paris, who's the Karen of the situation. Mr. Putnam, like, if we're just counting people who are really from here, there are two assholes in this town, and he's both of them, basically. Mm -hmm. Charles Corey's there, too. He's some old canny octogenarian. He's an old octogenarian. He's tough. <laughs> Uh, As opposed to those young octogenarians, uh, yeah, 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 you know what I mean. Like you, yeah. you're a young octogenarian. <laughs> he he's had some squabbles with Putnam in the past over land disputes, and he does it again now, for our pleasure. And Giles Corey is kind of buddies with John Proctor. Yeah, John Proctor's there, he and Nurse, Mrs. Nurse, Rebecca, they think the whole witch thing is just a bit of teenage silly season. Uh, it's just like kids getting overexcited. Meanwhile, Paris and Putnam took it pretty seriously when I obviously I agree with their position. <laughs> Everybody has a bit of an argument. And then the, I think the big tension here is between Reverend Paris and John Proctor and they get really aggressive and way up in each other's faces and Paris is like, hey John, why don't you come to church very often? You never come to my sermons anymore. And John's like, well, maybe if you remember to mention God once in a while, reverend, instead of always banging on about hell. I mean, what, are you just obsessed with Satan maybe a little bit? Ooh. And I kind of like them. They're a little flirty. Oh, you saying? I, I'm not not saying. And then, guess who turns up? I don't um, know. Think you, I think you're going to like this guy. Oh. The Reverend John Hale. Witch finder. Um, <laughs> he, Ooh, no. He's come to Salem, invited by Paris. He, a learned guy, an intellectual, but he's also, as the narrator reminds us, got a fairly sort of black and white view of things. I love the bit where uh, Hale brings his books, then he goes, Here is all the invisible world, caught, defined, and calculated. In these books the devil stands stripped of all his brute disguises. Have no fear now. We shall find him out if he has come among us. There's a man after my own heart. That wasn't a terrible American accent. That was a pretty good Connecticut accent. Hey, came from over the border. But I just like Hale because he comes in and he's like, Gentlemen, I am a scientist of deviltry. Let's proceed rationally, shall we? <laughs> yeah, Everyone yeah, just yeah, yeah. calm down. He's a great guy. Yeah. Pump thigh breaks and we'll, <laughs> we'll proceed from here. Giles Corey, he's still there, remember? Remember that guy? The wily, ornery, any Americans would say. He's ornery. So Giles makes an idle remark about his wife reading. We don't like that, do we? Wives reading. And Hale leaps upon that immediately. Then Hale asks Paris to recall if when he uh, chanced upon the girls the other night, happened there to be some movement in the soup? Where are you from now? <laughs> I don't know. Hale, um, Hale, my friend, you were just a Connecticut yuppie Pete Campbell type. Now, What's happening? Why now are he's kind of gone. He's like somewhere on the border between Somerset and County uh, Cork. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was there something moving in the soup? And uh, Paris is like, I believe it. I, 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 
I believe there was something afoot in the soup. There was a foot in the soup? Yeah, moving. Then he interrogates Tichuba and Abigail. Abigail very quickly pins all the blood drinking on Tichuba. Well, she she knows that her two sort of servant friends, Mary and Mercy, are loose ends, and she needs to get out ahead of this story. And goddamn if she does not make this sensational. So she she goes off on this list. She's like, actually, yes, I did drink blood. I did, you know, I, I did sign Satan's book. She says, Tatuba's to blame. Tatuba sends her spirit to me and makes me laugh in church. And everyone's like, oh yeah, you did get kicked out of church a little while ago for laughing. And then she says, Tatuba makes me have sex dreams. And all the men sort of lean a little closer and go, go on. And she says, <laughs> Child, please elaborate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tatuba makes me sleepwalk naked. And they're all like, uh-huh, uh-huh, let me just sit kind of oddly in this chair for a minute. And then she's like, Tatuba makes me drink blood. I'm also an innocent white woman, don't forget that. And this is the day that public relations was born. And Tatuba's like, not on my watch, f***o. And she starts rejecting Satan and saying, oh, somebody else asked me to join. She joins in pretty much. Yeah, yeah. She's just like, oh, well, yeah, there was a, no there, was a there had to be a second knows. shooter. You know, she does all that, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, she knows immediately. She's like, oh, this, this, you know, frankly, crazy white girl is, is throwing me under the bus. I haven't done anything, okay? Everybody's going mad. All the girls, Tichibur, Abigail, Betty, sun. Betty wakes up from her yeah, coma. All, all the sundry girls as well start just accusing all the locals, mainly outsider figures at this point, of being seen in the company of the devil, the uh, black prince. Um, sorry, you were worried that the microphone wasn't working. I, I idly glanced over in your responses to scream into the microphone. <laughs> scream black prince. Into the <laughs> I mean, and then, and then Betty and Abby just go sort of off their rockers, volleying more and more names yeah. back and forth. Yeah, it's like the most psychotic tennis game that ends at the sort of like orgasmic pitch and then the scene end. Like this is a real, it's a hell of an end of a first act. Where can it go from here? We'll see. Eight days later, and I bet things have super calmed down. I think everyone's just taking a deep yeah. breath. Oh no, wait. So we open on John Proctor's home, and he, he comes back into the house after a hard day. He dislikes his wife's cooking, but he then pretends to like it later. So again, we have this recurring honesty theme here. And I think this is so interesting, right? So Elizabeth, she's like, oh, you like the stew? It's rabbit stew. And the rabbit just walked into the house yeah, today. Yeah, this, this is a good bit. And she's like, I was able to just pick it up and skin it. And both of them, both John and Elizabeth, think this is a really good sign. My best friend, Justine, who's a medieval scholar, I'm always going to come back to her. She taught me that basically in the medieval and early modern period, rabbits are often depicted as signs of Satan or as witches familiars. So if you watch the recent film, The Witch, there's that scene where a rabbit stares down people with a gun, basically. And this is like a, just a really common trope. I'm sitting here going, oh, John and Elizabeth, y'all are, you literally welcomed Satan into your house. So John Proctor promises to buy Elizabeth a new cow romantic and he brings a real like i'm recommitting to my marriage energy and he's really disappointed about it he doesn't like the way she kisses she forgets his cider he complains that there are no fresh flowers in the house get your own cider carry on yeah ex yeah exactly and this opening scene he has been very hard at work the sexual division is important in this context i'm sorry which side are you on because two seconds ago you I'm were i'm not sure the one thing you proddies have going for you is divorce and these jerks won't even make use of that? I don't know in Puritan America 
yeah, how, how that worked. Yeah. Uh, yeah how John Milton wrote loads of stuff about divorce, didn't he? But at the very least, that's the one thing you guys have going for you. I'm like, please, just get divorced. You guys don't like each other. But anyway, the point is, they get into a further fight because their servant, Mary Warren, who is one of Abby's friends who turned up in the last scene, she's gone into Salem despite their explicit instructions for her not to go. And John's like, Elizabeth, can you not control the servants? She's just like, no, not really. And apparently Mary is, quote, an official of the court. I mean, well, I actually saw a tweet about this once saying that Arthur Miller should have titled this play Subpoena the Teenage Witch. Ah, I, very good. And Abby, in the last week has meanwhile gotten famous, and she is this little star darling of the whole witch-finding community. I just think, like, what does celebrity in 1692 America mean? Are men sending her letters asking for woodcut drawings of her feet? Like, what is going on? Like, what is the equivalent of today? You, you're looking at me blankly. You don't know that that's a thing if you get famous as a woman. People being like, send me pictures of your feet! I knew it was if you got famous as a member of the elect. <laughs> I'd never heard it about... You get a lot of requests for pictures of your feet, do you? Yeah, walking on water and things, which I'm happy to oblige. <laughs> so, Abby, who's become just queen shit, has started leading this troop of girls who all start falling down and pointing and screaming witch at anyone and everyone who upsets them. And Elizabeth Proctor thinks that John should go into Salem and tell everyone that it's a fraud. She's like, you just need to go and you like you have a you have a moral duty to just say this is a big Protestant crock of shit. She's like, John, because Abigail's in love with you, you're probably the only person she's not gonna accuse of witchcraft. And also you are sort of beholden to tell the truth here. But he clearly doesn't want to report her because he's still kind of in love with Abigail and this leads to a whole fight. Then their servant Mary Warren, one of Abby's lackeys, comes home, but she she hands Elizabeth Proctor a creepy little doll. Yes, I am here for whatever this is. A creepy doll is always a net gain in any story. I was there for it until Mary Warren says, in conjunction with handing this over, that 39 people have been accused of being witches and will hang, and everyone is pointing fingers at everyone else, and this is rapidly getting out of control. It's all right, though, because it's all, like, like vulnerable women and stuff, isn't it? It's like, oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, 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 yeah it's fine, it's fine, fine. They were, like, just kind of weird old if mid midwives and homeless women and drinkers. And, and, and yeah. non-white women. Yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, that's fine, yeah, that's fine. Don't worry about it. So Mary Warren then says that she has saved Elizabeth Proctor's life that day when somebody, I wonder who, started bringing up Elizabeth's name in connection with witchcraft. But Mary's like, listen, I live closely with Elizabeth Proctor as her servant. I've never seen her do anything. And little Mary Warren, who's clearly gotten a taste for some of Abby's power, then holds Elizabeth hostage, saying, Elizabeth better start treating her better as a servant. And I'm kind of on Mary's side here, <laughs> Not least because I've always wanted to look somebody in the eyes and say, you work for me now. Yeah. But the only problem is Mary Warren isn't Abby. She does not have her moxie or her charisma. And she might just have super pissed her off by protecting the one woman that Abby despises. So this is when Elizabeth Proctor realizes Abigail's out for her blood. And she has a great idea to save her own life. This, this is a really stupendous, well-reasoned idea. She's like, John. You need to go see Abigail, not to reason with her, not to sort of beg based on your sort of like mutual affection or whatever. No, no, no. You need to go into town and you need to call Abigail Williams a whore 
and be as mean as possible so she won't be in love with you anymore and then we'll just leave us alone happily to mind our own business. Doesn't work though, does it? Treat him mean, keep him keen. Because All the pickup artists say it. <laughs> Have you been on their forums lately? Is that, is that the latest tip you learned? I'm just remembering it from my days as a sinner before I became a member of the elect. The rationale here is that, yes, teenage girls disappointed in love are known for one thing, and that's definitely a measured and not at all vindictive reaction. She's definitely not going to hang you both now out of pure spite. So they get into yet another fight. Then John Hale, the witchfinder, knocks on their door. And he reveals that Rebecca Nurse, yeah, a big wig, one of the bigger wigs of the uh, town, is now implicated in the trials and that an accusation has also been made against Elizabeth. Suddenly this turns into a bit of a kind of interview, doesn't it? He's kind of like, just just a few questions. It's like, oh, mm. Peter Fox it, doesn't he? Mm, just one more thing, I notice you've not been uh, going to church lately. And they go, oh, well, that's because we don't really agree with the theological position of the, uh, Mr. Paris, Reverend Paris. Yeah, he's got a whiff of popery about yeah, him, exactly. he's always asking yeah, us to... He's always got these like bowls of like dried plants and things, hasn't he? Uh, with a potpourri pun. Oh, uh, you have never been more in love with yourself than you are in this moment. Uh, oh no. Next. Then he's like, oh, yeah, if you if you really are true, true believers, why don't you throw a couple of the old commandments at me, preferably all. And he kind of lists them off if it gets adultery. A little bit of a kind of Freudian slip omission. A little, a little heavy-handed. This is the yeah, one weakness, I think. Because yeah. his, his wife is like, he's like, oh, there are only nine. And his wife is like, Adultery, John, and yeah, I just, I did, looks... I did roll my eyes at that a little bit. Next, John tells Hale that Abigail had confided to him that the witchcraft is all nonsense. Hale says that she, Tichiba, and all the other girls had already confessed to it. And why not if they must hang for denying it, John responds. Daniel, your accent is all over the shop. I don't know who is That's how John talks. What? Since when? We've been... I've never done a John voice until now. Okay. Oh, oh, does that mean I can do a Cornish accent? A West Country accent? That was not what that was. But you can. That's um, exactly what that was. They've already confessed to it. <laughs> That's very good, yeah. Uh, next, Giles Corey and Francis Nurse arrive. They're not happy, are they? They're talking about how their wives have been arrested. They're upset about the fact. Next, the town clerk arrives. Or clerk, as they say in America. That's why the Puritans went over, wasn't it? To say to be, to be free to say clerk instead of clerk. The town clerk arrives to arrest Elizabeth. Yeah, they say she's been named by Abigail Williams, and it's, it's Chekhov's a, puppet. Well, well, it's a little bit like when a when a cop asks before they frisk you if you have anything sharp in your pockets. They're like, "Ma'am, do you have any witchcraft stuff in the household? Any cauldrons or wands or voodoo pockets?" I have newt. Yeah, and she's like, she's like, no, and somebody goes. There's literally a poppet sitting right there on the table, and they're like, step out of the car, ma'am. <laughs> so they inspect the poppet, and they, it has a needle in it. Turns out Abigail only recently had a needle in her torso, so it's voodoo dollary most foul. Okay, can we just pause here, because this bitch across town stabbed herself in the stomach with a needle to frame somebody she didn't like for witchcraft. Daniel, Abigail Williams... Do you like her or do you love her? <laughs> it's um, kind of admirable, isn't it? And I say that, that is... as a staunch member of the elect. I can't help but admire that kind of conviction. So, um, so now we have basically the wives of Giles Corey, Francis Nurse, and John Proctor, who are all taken. 
And I gotta be honest, I'm seeing a zany roommate situation boiling out of this. This is the this is the darkest possible timeline for Three's company or three men and a baby. You know? Oh, you're imagining the remaining husbands all having to like sort of do the dishes and fetch cider for each other. Yeah. Is cider alcoholic in America? I was wondering about that because in the no when I came over here, somebody got me a cider because I did not drink when I came to the UK, and I got shoisted. Slippily, slippily. Uh, there, there is a, there is a picture of me with my eyes deeply unfocused. Go, I am having cider. I'm having a nice time. And it's not a good photo. Okay. Because I did not realize it was alcoholic. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this period, I imagine it probably would at least have a low alcohol yeah. content, you would think. Yeah. But no, it's, it's basically just a sort of seasoned apple juice. It's very is, nice. This must be like small beer, though, but like a cider version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Act three. So we open on one of the trials, and we are introduced to two new characters, judges brought in to handle all of this. And the judges are Hathorne and Danforth. The Daniel Danforth the Fourth. That's his full name, isn't it? <laughs> Alright, uh, this is our. Uh, I can't do it. They daddled out forth the fourth from uh, Boston. If elected, I vow to rid the Commonwealth of Massachusetts of all dancing and all packs. I can't do it. It's. it's I know, it's better. Yeah. Is it's that better mine? Oh, I, uh, so you told me I got the part? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> So, we're, we're having basically a trial, they're querying all of these people who have been accused, and then John Proctor bursts in like he's carrying a winning hand at cards, and he's like, what's up dummies, look what I got! So John Proctor brings in Mary Warren, and he says that the girls are all lying, and Mary is gonna vouch for it. And Mary is a little hesitant at first, and I'm like, but why, with all of these grey-faced men staring angrily at you, getting their bike chains ready so they can whoop your ass? <laughs> but eventually she does actually summon up her courage, and she says it's true that Abigail Williams' story is just all an act. Unfortunately, Reverend Paris is there, our local Karen, and he hates John Proctor. I, I am thinking there's a little queer reading here. There's, there's, a, there's a certain kink to a Reverend Paris that I can't quite put my finger on. Right. What? It's just funny, isn't it? I like the thought of it. And Reverend Paris convinces Governor Danforth that John Proctor is just there to try to overturn the court in some sort of bizarre power grab. And I'm like, yeah, dude, likely. Let's, let's use our respective 17-year-olds as sort of Pokemon and have them emotionally cockfight each other for control of the community. Like, what, what is this? That's just good parenting. Neither of my parents. <laughs> yeah, if that's, I have two. That's just good loco parentis. Are you wearing two monocles right now? <laughs> I think that'd be, this is the side point, but I think that'd be a really good idea to have a, a sound effect of a monocle dropping in a drink whenever something's shocking. <laughs> 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 oh, my, my monocle. <laughs> I was, yeah, was okay. going to write to you about it. I was going like, this is brilliant. Shocking thing happens in a book. Bloop. Monocle fell in the drink. So then the judges drop a bombshell to John Proctor. They say Elizabeth Proctor, who they arrested that morning, now claims that she's pregnant, which I doubt very much. Oh my god, my monocle found my drink. But I do dream of the telenovela close-up that John Proctor has when he hears this. And the men think it's possible because they've examined her body, but Proctor insists, and this is quite important, he insists that if his wife says it, it must be true because she never ever lies under any circumstances. Then Giles Corey bursts in and drops a bombshell of his own about Mr. Putnam. Giles is like, 
Putnam coldly prompted his daughter to cry witchery upon a neighbor in order to expropriate his land. That it's all just, you know, Putnam's exploiting the witch hysteria to filch land off neighbors. It's like if gentrification were a person. <laughs> Giles is like, oh, I've had loads of experience of court battles in my many years. That's the American way, isn't it? To be constantly suing people and being sued. So Giles thinks that, you know, everybody's equal in the eyes of the law. Danforth is like, tell us who your witness was. And uh, Giles is like, I'm pleading the fifth. And Danforth is like, we don't have that. <laughs> You're in trouble, Sonny. I like that he accidentally tattles on his wife, but he won't tell who, like, this random stranger. This is, He takes his bros before hoes code very seriously. The court starts to interview Mary. She admits that the girls all made it up. All the girls are brought in. Danforth reminds them that perjury, false witness, is a crime, a bit like witchcraft. Unsurprisingly, after being threatened with being tried for perjury, the girls all double down. Hale, starting to freak out a bit, isn't he? This is where he lost me. I used to like Hale. He's starting to get upset, isn't he? He said, I've signed 72 death warrants, I'm a minister of the Lord, and dare not take a life without there be a proof so immaculate no slightest qualm of conscience may, conscience may doubt it. Don't like that. Judge first, then ask questions. That's what I think. You're a hard man. Yeah. So John Proctor has just had enough of all of this, and he screams in front of the whole court that Abigail is a whore. You know, sorry for the sort of a anti-sex worker language. This is what is quoted in the text. And this stops the proceedings cold, and John admits that he had an affair, and that Abigail is only doing this out of spite so his wife will be dead, which, first of all conceded much john you're sitting there going she is so obsessed with me she's also doing it to get out of trouble so ease up buddy then abigail says this guy is lying and she's like look danforth my buddy you'll let me get away with anything you love me and i love me so let's just ignore all of this and danforth is like well good points that is true there is only one way to settle it if elizabeth proctor knew that you were a harlot and that's why she fired you and put you out on the street and that's why you want revenge and she also apparently never lies, never lies then we'll bring her in here and she can say which one of you is lying or not and proctor's like great so uh, they bring in elizabeth and she tries to save john's good name bless her and she does end up lying for presumably the first time in her life and she says she put abigail out on the street because she thought her husband kind of fancied her but she doesn't think they've ever actually had sex and john's there like elizabeth no i i confess to you your honor she's just trying to save my reputation i swear to god i jumped on abigail from out of a tree practically please don't listen to my wife she's just trying to save me and so they think he's committed perjury and is just trying to hurt abigail's reputation you can't win can you whatever you you do and so abigail's like right right now i have the judges eating out of the palm of my hand let's what, 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 what can we do to make this trip really peak for them so she starts freaking out in that way that she does and getting her girl squad all to start screaming that there's an invisible yellow bird pecking at them and they're being witched at this moment and this bird is sent by this jealous mary warren who is backed by john proctor whose situation now looks real bad and the freakiest moment comes when the girls all start pointing and shrieking and repeating everything mary warren says where she's like Abby, what are you doing? Stop it. And they're like, Abby, 
what are you doing? Stop it. And it's, 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 mm, it's a it's genuinely a yeah. scary moment in the play. But Mary gets so freaked out by this, as you would, in fairness, that she eventually just, she's like, oh my god, Abigail is a force to be reckoned with. Can't beat him. You can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she recants her, her recantation, and she's like, no, the girls are telling the truth this whole time. John Proctor is lying because he's an agent of the devil. The devil got to me through him. So now John Proctor is condemned of not only perjuring himself, but also of being a witch. Abigail's just sitting there going, well, <laughs> I've well and truly gone girl this boy. Smashed my, it, hasn't she? My yeah. work here is done. End of act three. Got the final act of the play, everybody. We're in Salem jail. Jail with a J. That's why the Puritans went there. So they went up to jail with a J. <laughs> Paris has gone a bit weird, hasn't he? The town have turned against him all the more. And also... I love this. You'll never guess what. I love it! Abigail has nicked his savings and run off with him. <laughs> so he's, he's in the soup. He's he? like, he's oh no, my leverage! Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. I am, I am the living embodiment of that Lucille Bluth gif going, good for her. Hmm. I could not be happier about this ending than if she threw a smoke bomb down and screamed, Back to hell I go! Like Meanwhile, Reverend Hale has been visiting the prisoners, advising them to confess to witchcraft now so that they don't hang. Yeah, he's like there in the capacity of a spiritual advisor being like, just just admit it and move on. Uh, is he literally <laughs> trying to bless this mess? Yes, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I think he's kind of... Well, he's, he's incredibly guilty, isn't he? Meanwhile, the, the, I like that the town are rebelling because it's the big names that are starting to hang, isn't it? When mm -hmm. like Hawthorne is like, I, everybody seemed very pleased, and they were like, that's because it was all losers. But now, now some nice people, people I like, people with money and stuff are getting hanged. John's been arrested, and Elizabeth agrees to talk to John and try to get him to name other people. And so they meet for a little bit, and she runs through a list of all the townsfolk who have confessed and those who have refused. Giles Corey, who is the old cantankerous litigious guy who was John Proctor's good buddy, he refused to speak at all. So, in fact, Daniel, you actually referenced Mentioned this, this in the panel episode, the panel episode yes. before you knew what was what. I made a I, I made a Giles Corey reference, and I don't think you quite no, got I didn't. it, but <laughs> you, you understood yeah. about pressing people to death who refused to testify. So go back and listen to our Pamela episode anyway. But basically, and this happened to the real life Giles Corey. He refused to speak, so they pressed him to death under heavy stones. And his last words were, more weight. Busy run it over. I'm him. sorry. Do you think that he practiced in the mirror that morning saying the coolest fucking line anyone has ever said in history? So John hears all of this and he eventually, okay, are you guys ready for this bullshit? He eventually agrees to save his own life because he's already a dishonest man. He sort of realizes that he's been lying on and off during this whole play. So it shouldn't make any difference if he lies any further and names people. But it would be dishonest to try to go out like a saint. John, climb down off the cross. Yeah, no, we need the bit, wood. Yeah. Elizabeth tells him to forgive himself, doesn't she? She's yeah. like, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, maybe I was cold. She says something like that, doesn't she? So Proctor says, oh yeah, okay, I will confess then if you forgive me. Danforth is like, we need a written record of this confession. John refuses to name names. They're like, you know, who, el who else did you do witchy things with? He was like, no one else. It was just me on that satanic twister mat. <laughs> uh, then um, that's just that's a quote. So that irks all the officials. 
to say the least. Yeah, they're like, well, you've admitted to dealing with Satan, but you refuse to name it. There's some jiggery pokery here. We don't know how to punish There's you. There's no I in coven. <laughs> um, so John signs the confession. Then Proctor's like, actually, screw the whole thing. I'll hang. Let me hang. Much wailing and sadness is had by all. That's the end. And then we have this little afterword where we hear that Paris got deselected from his post as Salem's preacher and he disappeared. As he lived to Karen another day. Yes, exactly. Fine. Meanwhile, the legend is that Abigail turned up as a, yeah, as a sex worker in Boston, as I said, and that Elizabeth remarried. Twenty years hence, those condemned as witches were exonerated by their, and their families compensated. And Miller writes, the power of the theocracy in Massachusetts was broken. The end. <laughs> but at least John Proctor died with his depression lifted. Yeah. So I guess that's a net good. I mean, I wouldn't recommend that for everyone. Get therapy. Hanging therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Ask your doctor if sacrificing your life for zero f***ing purpose is right for you. <laughs> he's, got, he's given me a real sort of tragic Squidward vibe. He's an odd character, isn't he? Yeah, his Moral of the story is... Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. The end. The to cast this thing, I was thinking, I was actually looking into this and it surprised me. There hasn't been a proper horror film version of this. This play lends itself so easily to a genuine horror film. There are so many bits that I found really chilling. The psychoanalysis bit, the paranoia. Mm. It's just, it's a malign play. And I was like, could, could we get a, a Jordan Peele maybe focusing on the sort of uh, Tatuba element? Could we get a, um, just because he did The Witch recently, a Robert Eggers doing a sort of maybe from the, the female perspective. So proper horror film. So we need some horror film veterans here. I was thinking as Governor Danforth, We've referenced Footloose in this as as the dad. John Lithgow as Governor Danforth. I love John Lithgow. I love John Lithgow. He's um, too funny for a genuine horror film. No, 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 he's not. He's done horror. He was the scariest bit in Dexter. Okay. Toni Collette, who is, a, again, a veteran horror film actress. I want her as Elizabeth Proctor. I think she could bring a lot of range to the role. Surprising, somebody who you need to straddle that line between horror and sort of, like, weird attractiveness. Give me David Tennant. As John Proctor. Yeah, that's good, that. No, 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 we haven't reached the peak yet, because as Abigail Williams... It's all coming, yep. I'm casting myself. Oh, God, I knew you were going to say that. Because in this film, it's a it's an edgy film, I just want a lot of flashbacks of me and David Tennant in a lot of sex scenes. I'm sorry, the flesh is weak. I am opposed to all theatre in my capacity as a puritanical member of the elect, but I did think and I'm a bit annoyed that you said that horror thing I was thinking about staging it and you know when you sometimes get adaptations of Macbeth well there's always that question in Macbeth whether to make Banquo's ghost and things real mm -hmm. or just a kind of madness thing okay could you do one where there really are witches and there really is a, well, a yellow like, bird but that's what I like about the idea of the horror yeah. film, is, uh, of the ambiguity yeah. of, is this actually happening I, know, I think just make it real just straight real yeah well, I mean, and I want the bird to be played by Big Bird Daniel, Daniel, stop making a mockery of the light porno I'm going to make with David Tennant. Jesus. Okay. Should we get to yes. the analysis? It's about mass hysteria. Hysteria is a sexist term. It refers to the womb. <laughs> do, you think the, do you think the play is... Do, 
Do you? This is serious now. Do you think the play? Sorry, I'm having hysteria. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Just... Do you think that the play is sexist? Is the portrayal of the girls as manipulative and hysterical sexist? The, no. I, what I think is going on here is the higher up you go, the the uh, so we have we have a certain hierarchy. Mm. And the higher up you go, the more it becomes solely men. In the middle, it's sort of men and women. And the lower you go, it becomes only women. Yeah. So this feels to me much more like a class thing, because all the people accusing people, largely, are working class women. Well, not are, even working, are they? They're are, like outcasts. Are, yeah, who are very vulnerable and are willing to punch both up and down. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, you definitely. I, I don't actually think it's sexist, but I do think. Well, but I think. But I wonder if there's about the hysteria and stuff. But I think there's something to be said about the connection between. I mean, I was I was joking about how when I was a teenager I was a Wiccan, but I think there's something really. Um, oh no, definitely, yeah, because it's there, about like that sort of a sort of substitute power, isn't it? Yeah, where yeah. you feel like you have no power, so you're trying to find it wherever you can, including in these ludicrous places. Well, they're the tail wagging the dog, aren't they? The girls somehow controlling this judge's opinion. It's almost because they're so, like, supposedly powerless and innocent that the judge can believe. Yeah. Her. And also, I like that you've got this whole funny thing with, like, Proctor refusing to give up his good name, and he'd rather hang than have his name trashed because mm. he's, like, a sort of yeoman type, whereas, like, Tichaba is like, well, I've got nothing to lose. I might as well just admit to being a, a yeah. witch now, <laughs> you know, like... So uh, there is this kind of funny meshing of different kinds of power relation. That, that's a really important point, is the John Proctor versus Tichuba type, where he's like, well... But I can I can define my own terms and I can go out on on my sort of steam and in my whatever. And poor Tichuba's like, you know what? I I will do whatever I can to no, you know. Yeah. yeah, it's just it's it's there, things are really bad. Whatever you know. What about all the kind of McCarthyite stuff? I was surprised actually by how cod historical this was. Like all the sort of wert thou a witch. I thought it'd be much more allegorical. Apart from the narrator who does talk about the Cold War, there's no like sort of nods to. McCarthyism within the play. But if McCarthyism is happening right then, you're going to pick up on those references without them being made explicit. So if oh, No, of course. Yeah. 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 That's what I'm saying, though, that it's not overtly but, topical. I thought it'd be more satirical, is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty straight, actually, yeah. from the Salem Witch Trials perspective. But I suppose again, if you're if you're going through this and you know that Arthur Miller has been brought up, I think I think he's underplaying it. Mm. In a way that now reads as a little bit more allegorical, but like at the time was probably they were like, okay, you probably could have underplayed it even more. Yeah, yeah. What about the formal stuff then? Is it a courtroom drama? Kind of. That is sort of threaded throughout the whole thing. But, but I was thinking it was, yeah, it's weird that like I feel like an underpinning factor in a courtroom drama or aspect of a courtroom drama is that the law does have a degree of coherence. In this, Giles Corey, who seems to really believe in the law, immediately gets browbeaten, and, and there's no, like... It's all about power, really, isn't it, rather than about the law. So it's almost like a courtroom drama without... It's a drama... But with no respect for the law. Well, it's, a, it's, a drama, it's a drama in a courtroom, but with no actual courtroom drama. Unlike Pamela, which was a courtroom drama without a courtroom, where they were kind of constantly legally Ooh. arguing with each other. They're kind of almost the opposite of each other in that respect. Harker, you fancy pants. That's pretty good. Oh, he's making a really smug face right now. The four main acts are each set in, like, big American institutions. So the church, the first act, the family home, the fa you know, the family in the second act, then the law, the courtroom, and finally the penal system, the jail, like, is that sort of... They're all shown to be f***ed up and undermined, and they've all kind of... You know, we've got the hypocritical preachers, the adulterous husbands, cold wives, the pompous judges, the cruel and exhibitionist punishments. It's just buggered, in it? 
America. I'm, that's a very, very good reading because I actually had my notes. What is going on with this four act nonsense? Usually you get you get a, a one act play, a three act play, or a it is odd. five act play. Yeah. A four act play is very odd. Mm. That is a very, very unusual setup. Each act is actually only one scene, so it's a yeah, four yeah, yeah. scene play really, as well. Yeah. It's very uh, self contained, every scene is, isn't it? Or actors. The other funny thing is that they're all sort of out of the way, aren't they? So we never see the dance, we never see the adultery, we never see any church services, we never see the trials because that scene is set in the vestry, isn't it? We never see the hangings, that all takes place off stage. Everything is about like hearsay and reportage. It's all very unclear and ambiguous, isn't it? It's all about, yeah, whisperings and, you know, I think that the form of the play reflects that world of like gossip and to move on to some advice, if you are dealing with a play, a play doesn't have a lot of, generally speaking, um, <laughs> th this one may be accepted, a lot of internal stuff, a lot of scene setting, you tend to get bare bones stuff and just the dialogue. So what do you do with that? How do you analyze that? And I think one of the ways to help is direct this play in your head as you're reading it. How are you telling these, these characters to say this line? How, how should they stand and move? And what should the lighting look like? What, what should the stage look like? How do you want the costumes? What music would you put in and why? Thinking about how you as a director would stage this will help inform how you're actually understanding these characters and how you understand the sort of symbolism that's, that's going in there. So mm. take a much more proactive role of like, right, what does my vision look like? That's going to help you understand the play, which sometimes can be quite cold to read just in, in sort of a text format. Yeah, you've got to engage with the medium on its own terms. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so the clue to our next episode. We're in the spooky season. We've already had something kind of about witches. Our next episode is a classic horror story with a very goofy American sidekick. And I imagine this is how Daniel perceives his own life. I was going to say... Give me some scampi with extra garlic. Wink! Why scampi? <laughs> well, you can cut this, but that's what. That's from Whitby, isn't it? Oh, God! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.